Because this is not just a campaign. This is a quest to save our country. Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I'm Jacob Jarvis. In this world, nothing is certain except death, taxes and Donald Trump running for president. After a prolonged period of fake uncertainty, on Tuesday night, the former commander-in-chief announced from Mar-a-Lago that he fancies another shot at the White House. But with even some of his children skipping the launch, does anyone else really want him to? Here to discuss this with me is Julie Norman, co-director of the UCL Center on US Politics. Julie, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Julie, his speech was full of the sort of signature, uh, shall we say, bravado we come to expect from Donald Trump. But let's not be polite. Was it just a load of nonsense, really? Well, it was long is what it was. It was over an hour long. And I would say he seemed to keep to the script for the first like 15 Mm. to 20 minutes and then kind of went off in his normal Trump riffs after that, which, you know, does play well to his audience who is Mm. there. And and I think he knows that. But in the first part of it, it was interesting what he said and what he didn't say. He, Mm. in some ways, he was a bit more of a traditional candidate in the sense of setting himself up as, uh, are you better or worse under Biden than you were under Mm. me? You know, was the economy better under me? Were you happier with your kids' schools? All these kinds of things. And really just doubling down on pretty traditional conservative issues like crime, Mm. like immigration, um, obviously inflation, an issue for everybody. So it was a bit more of a normal pitch, if you will, uh, for the first part of it. And it's also notable what, what he wasn't talking about either. For one of his few appearances where he didn't focus a lot on 2020 and the alleged election fraud or the election being stolen. Mm. Um, obviously not talking about January 6th. So in some ways, I think at least his advisors were reading the writing on the wall that many voters, including Republicans and including MAGA voters, you know, are looking ahead more than looking back. And the constant drumming of 2020 wasn't going to be enough and he needed to change his message a bit. With Trump, you know, he seems best to me when he's on the attack. And as you say, there's a few things there that he had been going at, which he's not mentioning now. Can he keep, you know, holding Biden up as a sort of bogeyman or does that not really not work for him? Well, I think he can and I think he will. And the fact that the Republicans do now have a majority in the House, however slim, Mm. will essentially aid him in that endeavor because they will also be spending the next two years trying to hold Biden's feet to the fire and trying to make him as unelectable as possible in 2024, whether that's by launching investigations into his son or Afghanistan or administration members or what have you. Um, their main aim for the next two years is going to be how to make Biden look bad. So that will provide a hopeful um, echo or chorus, if you will, for whatever Mm. Trump is trying to say about Biden at the same time. And as much as Trump gets leverage in promoting himself, bashing Biden also plays well with his base. So I don't see that trickling away anytime soon. Did Trump say anything new at all? Was there anything that surprised you in terms of, you know, new messaging as opposed to just things he didn't say? 
Yeah, again, I would say um, I would say the omissions were more surprising than what he he did say because usually he he tends to go off on a lot of these these riffs as it is. So yeah, I would say if if anything was more the omissions that stood out than any kind of new material coming from him. Hmm. What did you make of the reaction so far to the speech? Yeah, well, you know, it's been rather mixed. I mean, he obviously had a select audience there that was very happy and excited about this announcement, and I do think that is more present in you know many demographics of the United States than is kind of currently being reported. Like we're hearing more about the silence in some quarters of the Republican Party, some open pushback to Trump from different elements of the Republican Party. But some of those elements are those that have always been more moderate or mainstream or establishment or whatever you want to call them. It's many of the Republicans who, you know, in 2016 never thought Trump would get the nomination, etc. So I think if we're actually talking about voters, you know, there's still, Trump still has a very large following and they may not be the people who are in, you know, places with, you know, megaphones or kind of spaces that, that they're heard all the time. But I, I think that loyal following is still there and is very pleased with this announcement. Among voters, how does Trump poll at the moment? Uh, so he's still polling very well. So in polls last week, it was the first time that DeSan- Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor who had a very good night last week, did edge out Trump slightly among Republican voters as who they would want to see as the 2024 nominee. But that was within the margin of error. So kind of 41% to 39% in one poll, kind of within one point another poll. So I would say because DeSantis had such a great night, he got a bump, however, you know, long or temporary. But we can see from the polls that Trump still holds, you know, between a third and a half of the party is still his number. They're st- he is still their number one choice. And, you know, it's important to note that as others throw their hat into the ring, that opposition to Trump will get kind of dispersed and broken up, and he will probably still hold that 30 to 40% going into the primaries. You spoke about people who were there at Mar-a-Lago and seemed very excited. But to me, one thing that was interesting was people who were quite notable in their absence. So Don Jr. wasn't there. Apparently, he was on a hunting trip. And Ivanka Trump wasn't there as well. It's always been a a family affair in the past, this kind of brand Trump. How much of an impact do you think it will have for the elder Donald, his children not been involved in that way? Yeah, so that obviously was noticed, I think. You know, Ivanka Trump, his daughter, did post on Instagram that she still loves her father, but she has chosen to not be involved in politics anymore, you know, focusing on her young family, etc., and my understanding is that both both she and her husband, Jared Kushner, are not planning to be involved in this next campaign or potential presidency again. So they've made it pretty clear that they are stepping away from the political side of, of Donald Trump. Don Jr., I would say it's still a little unclear, even though he was not physically there, which does seem a little bit like a snub. He was, um, you know, tweeting, sending out clips of the speech, insulting Biden, like doing all his stuff on Twitter and social media that he has done in the past. So he doesn't really seem to be, you know, trying to distance himself from Trump Sr. yet either. So I, I think that one is, we still have to kind of watch and see how involved he will be. Does Trump feel quite exposed to you if he doesn't have those sort of people around him? To me, it felt like Don Jr. kind of yeah, he was really the the front foot of Trumpism and the more extreme and antagonistic side of it. And then you had Ivanka who gave some veneer of respectability in a way it felt like. Do you think it kind of isolates 
Trump for him to not have those people as close to him? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the moderation, like Ivanka effect, like I think that horse has bolted to a certain yeah. extent after January 6th. Like anyone who kind of was like, maybe, maybe he's okay. Like I, I think anyone who might have been persuaded mm-hmm. January 6th kind of took that away. And in terms of Don Jr. kind of doing the the real dirty work, you know, I think there's enough other allies who will do it yeah. for him <laughs> if, if Don Jr. does not come back from a hunting trip. And I also just don't think Donald Trump himself is going to shy away from that. If anything, he'll probably be even bolder this time around when, uh, mm. you know, he's he has nothing to lose kind of uh, going into this one. And uh you know, I don't think we've really heard him hold back necessarily in the past either. So I, I, I think Trump knows that what is appealing about Trump is himself. I think it's one reason why some of the Trump-backed candidates did not do super well. Um, and I think Trump believes this, that he just has a certain hold and a certain cult of personality that attracts people. Uh, and and I think that is bigger in him than it is in his his children or wingmen or what have you. Jared Kushner wasn't kind of as in front of the cameras, maybe, as some of the Trump children. But I know had a sort of a big grip when it came to policymaking decisions, uh, as much as there were policymaking decisions made by Trump during his time in the White House. Do you think that his absence could actually mark a kind of shift in terms of what Trump would really want to do if he were to get his hands back on power. Yeah, I mean, I think that Kushner did have, you know, some kind of a policy role in the first administration, obviously, with some of the foreign policy initiatives mm. in the Middle East, uh, where, where I do some other work um, on the Abraham Accords and whatnot. So I would say Kushner probably left a bit more of a policy impact than some of the other yeah. advisors that we've heard about. Again, I think his absence is notable, but if anything, he was more of an odd fit in that initial administration mm. than not. And so I think whoever Trump has around him will probably be a, you know, a, a bit more Trump-like and allowing yeah. Trump to call the shots a little bit more. So um, I, my sense is there were probably tensions between Kushner and Trump in that first administration. And so not having Kushner as involved will probably make life easier, if anything, from Trump, even though the policy impact will probably be less and or worse, depending on, uh, depending on what happens. Turning away from the family, let's talk about media mogul Rupert Murdoch. So a News Corp exec told the I, we've been clear with Donald, there have been conversations between them during which Rupert made it clear to Donald that we cannot back another run for the White House. Do you think Trump can can do it without the support of News Corp? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, we've heard these quotes from Murdoch. And I, I would say, you know, if Trump stays as popular as I think he has a good chance of staying, Murdoch and Fox will come around. There may not be as much of a um, cheerleader for Trump this time, especially if DeSantis joins the race. Mm. They're going to have to just balance the coverage between the two of them because DeSantis will also be very popular with their base. But um, at the end of the day, you know, Fox is a, a business just as much as anywhere else. And if their viewers want to see him, which viewers mm. usually do, especially conservative viewers, I can't see them uh, completely turning their back on him, even if there's not quite the same feedback loop as there was in the past. You know, Trump also has very cozy relations with Sean Hannity, with Tucker Carlson, with some of the personalities in mm. Fox that are probably, you know, have a bit more of an influence even uh, than Murdoch in some ways. And I just say also, if for some reason Fox did try and distance themselves, there's enough other outlets now that will project Trump to his base with Newsmax and some of the other outlets that have emerged. 
Murdoch's outlets seem to quite fancy DeSantis. I mean, just how ugly could this get between DeSantis and Trump in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think it can get, it will get very intense. But I think in a way that needs to happen. I mean, one thing that's been unfortunate for the Republican Party over these last, you know, four or six years has been the inability to really have, you know, a critical voice against Trump. And that was mm. from people within the party, from a lot of conservative media. And I do think that whether DeSantis runs or wins the nomination or what have you, like, he has he has broken through in a way and has let a little bit of light into the party. Um, however, one thinks about DeSantis is, is different. Um, but he has he has loosened Trump's grip. I would say Trump's grip is still there, but he has loosened it enough that mm. there can be a conversation in the party into what kind of leader they want, what kind of policies they want to prioritize. You know, can they move away from this election denialism back to more traditional conservative culture war stuff. And I, I think it's a conversation that is important to have aired, even though I think it will be pretty bruising and unfortunately very long with two years to go. So, <laughs> Trump's uh, former vice president, Mike Pence, has also refused to support his run. I remember thinking that he might fancy himself as a future presidential candidate at some point. Do you think there's any chance he could go for it? I mean, he just seems a little bit boring compared to Ron DeSantis to be blunt about it. But, you know, do you think there's any chance of that? Yeah. Um, so I would say the other thing with DeSantis probably potentially running is that it kind of opens the door for others to run as well and to challenge Trump in ways that if they just saw it as the juggernaut of Trump and them as the, uh, you know, David and Goliath kind of going after him, they would maybe not have. So I do think Mike Pence is still um, very likely to consider running, uh, as well as Mike Pompeo, possibly Nikki Haley. Um, mm. There's a number of others who could potentially run. Partly, I don't think, realistically, I mean, none of them are polling even close to levels of DeSantis, and at this point, wouldn't really be a viable uh, opposition. But it does keep one or put one on the national stage. It positions yeah. one to perhaps get chosen as a vice presidential candidate, um, say by DeSantis or what have you. There's a lot to be gained from doing it, even if one doesn't win the nomination. Could DeSantis have maybe played his card a little bit too early here? I mean, you think of sort of uh, Ted Cruz seemed like someone who could be president in the past. And now I really don't think anyone thinks that. And I think part of that is probably because he got so bruised by the battle with Trump. Could DeSantis have maybe put himself in a bit of an awkward position there that, you know, if you, you know, if you come for the king, don't miss? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, DeSantis hasn't declared yet, first of all. So we we don't know. So we, I would say, uh, he, you know, he did really well on Tuesday night. He's been a sort of rising star in the party even before Tuesday. So it's, you know, Trump who has kind of made it as as early as it is. And I would say for someone like DeSantis, you know, with politics, you ride the wave when it's coming. And mm. I think, you know, you can see someone like, uh, you know, Obama or others who, you know, probably thought they would be waiting longer or people told them they should have waited longer. But when you have a great night, when you're popular in your party, when everyone's talking about you, like, that's the time to go for it. And I think there are enough, you know, has-beens like the Ted Cruz's of the world <laughs> who didn't get in at certain moments and probably won't get in now. So I think someone like DeSantis says, look, if I'm popular now, I'm you know, not going to shy away from this. Financially, it is expensive to run for president. And Trump seems to 
you know, never stop getting sued. Is money going to be an issue for him? My sense is that Trump still has a pretty large uh, war chest actually going into this campaign. I mean, he did a lot of um, fundraising even you know, during and after the 2020 election. Some of that obviously is probably going to be under legal scrutiny. But he went into all of this as a very rich person. He is still a very rich person. And again, just has uh, you know a lot of contributions still coming in through various packs and whatnot. So my sense is that Trump, as he has before, will probably be able to ride out some of the financial difficulties. And, you know, I think launching this campaign when he did, he was, you know, he's aware of uh, the fact that it's going to be long, but he wanted to get into the fight early. Looking elsewhere in US politics, what is the state of play at the moment after the midterms? And just how big of an issue for the Democrats is losing the House? Because it looks like things were going quite well for them. And I would say things still seem like they've gone better than perhaps expected. But, you know, are we still just going to be locked in a sort of GOP quagmire as they block everything? Yeah. I, so Democrats definitely did better than they could have expected. Holding the Senate was very big and keeping the House majority for Republicans to a very slim majority is also notable. But at the end of the day, a majority is still a majority. So Republicans do control the House. Uh, we will have a split government you know, starting in January. And usually in real terms, that simply means a lot of gridlock, like not a lot will pass in either way. Republicans won't be able to pass most things on their agenda. Biden won't be able to pass most things on his. What I do think we'll see a lot of is what I mentioned before, you know, launching a lot of investigations just to keep the attention and the news cycles on the the mishaps of the Biden administration and things that have not gone so well for them trying to make, uh, you know, trying to kind of keep them to task on that. And we'll also just see a lot of agenda setting for 2024. So the House, you know, putting up bills that they know won't pass or clear the Senate, but are things that they can show their voters that they were putting up and promoting as as major things for 2024. So my sense is that's where we'll be. There's always talk when the parties are that close that it opens up some rooms for bipartisan compromise. I I doubt that'll happen on most issues um, because the parties will just be trying to make each other look bad before 2024, essentially. With Congress being split like that, as you say, it sort of gives uh, the GOP a bit of a footing there. Is the uh, Democratic Party now going to face its own sort of issues with divisions, particularly when it comes forward to 2024? You know, DeSantis is the new GOP darling. Is there a Democrat equivalent there? Yeah, so I would say, you know, Trump has obviously said he's in for 2024. And the big question now is if Biden is in too. Biden has said he will probably make a decision early in the new year. He has indicated that he will run, which is what was expected. I think when Democrats were preparing to really take a hit, many thought that would be, you know, the the reason to either nudge Biden uh, to step aside or for Biden himself to step aside. But with them overperforming, it kind of gives Biden an opportunity mm. to to stay in the role, if you will, to uh, kind of assume a certain kind of mandate for for going for re-election. Um, and I would say Democrats are rather split on this. You know, there are some who feel that Democrats did well in spite of Biden rather than because of him on election night. There are others who think Biden himself has actually been okay, but are worried about his age. He turns 80 this week, so he'll be uh, 82 going going into the next uh, election mm-hmm. cycle. So there is a lot of um, murmuring, I would say, about others. But one of the key challenges is, is there's not a clear 
person to no. pass the baton to. In normal situations, you know, the, the vice president is usually the one to look to. Unfortunately, Kamala Harris is one of the few people who has lower approval ratings than Biden and, and has for some time. So I think she would really need a significant rebrand to, uh, to be able to, to do that. But you know, there are some other interesting people to keep an eye on. Um, Gretchen Whitmer who just won re-election for governor in Michigan, which is a really crucial swing state. She's been very vocal on abortion rights, battling you know, right-wing extremism, and I think is a, a sort of rising star in the party. Pete Buttigieg, who had a good breakout election cycle in 2020, is still you know, someone who I think if Biden stepped aside, would potentially throw his hat in the ring also. I would say if Biden does not run, it's a pretty open field for Democrats. There's not one person who stands out as a clear successor to Biden. Is the age dynamic something for both sides to kind of think about? Because, you know, Ron DeSantis is significantly younger than both Trump and Biden. And it would feel to me that it would be hard for Biden to run against someone that young when that is going to be such a such an attack line whereas biden running against trump again you know they're not far off each other when it comes to age so do you think that kind of will play into whoever each party picks yeah absolutely i mean you know if trump ends up being the nominee uh for 2024 you know he'll be the same age biden was in this last cycle 78 mm. i mean biden or um, trump is much more robust seeming sometimes in mm. his personality and his demeanor. But again, you know, age is age. And that will, yeah. I think, catch, catch up to him to some degree in this campaign. And just, you know, just by numbers, it'll be much closer to Biden as opposed mm. to if he has to go up against a very young candidate, someone with a, uh, you know, a young family with a bit more of that youth, like youthful energy and charisma. So I do, I think Democrats are very aware that for many reasons, DeSantis would be a very difficult opponent for Biden. Finally, people have written Trump off before. I mean, back in 2016, I don't think anyone really expected it to happen. Should we be cautious of allowing him to be able to frame himself as an underdog? Definitely. I would say, you know, whether one loves or hates Trump, it's, it's important not to discount him. In 2016, no one thought he would do it. In 2018, after the midterms, everyone said he had sunk the party after 2020, you know, after January 6th, like there's been so many mm. times where we've said, okay, that's it. Everyone's had enough. Everyone's ready to move on. And then mm. here he comes again. So I would say it's, it's important to not underestimate his staying power. And again, he tends to be strongest when he can frame himself as a victim, as the underdog, you know, even within his own party. And uh, so it's, it's something that um, is kind of the catch 22, where even if it seems like he's on the back foot, he will even use that to his advantage. So I, I would say he's, uh, again, his gr grip on the party is lessened, but he is very much still in the picture and very much still a front runner. Julie, thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Listeners, if you enjoy this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes ad-free and early, as well as access to exclusive merchandise. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me in the Bunker. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. 
week. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production and music by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.